0: Nagging. Naturalist. It's the Nagging Naturalist podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to another mini-sode for the Tasseled Wobbegong. mini episodes like this are more casual and typically shorter to have discussions around the highlighted species of the month or other talks about conservation. This segment is called Bookworms, in which I review a book that is related to either the animal of the month or conservation. But before we get into that, I just wanted to say again congratulations to the people who won the Hellbender Coloring Page Contest. It was really exciting to see everybody's artwork, and I was absolutely ecstatic as I mailed out the prizes. But thanks again to everybody who participated. I really appreciated it. It was a lot of fun, and I absolutely loved everybody's creativity when it came to the Hellbender. It was super cool. One hellbender even came with a story. So there was one entry that was Sir Snotter, and he was a paladin who protects his freshwater stream. It was absolutely adorable. I may have cried a little bit. Super cute. Anyway, that's all the business I have. There's not a whole lot to discuss this week. So I'm just going to go ahead and launch right into this. So the book I chose for this episode is called The Shark's Paintbrush, it's by Jay Harmon it was published back in 2014. This book blends both a bit of the animal of the month, a little bit more on just general sharks than the Wobbegong, but also conservation, so there's a little bit of both in this book. While it is a touch semi-autobiographic, it does focus on biomimicry, which I mentioned in the first episode of this month. And for a reminder, biomimicry is a term that's used to describe Uh, technology and models that mimic nature and natural systems in order to solve human issues. Uh, Humans have been mimicking nature and technology for about as long as human civilization has existed, like since we started creating technology in general. Though biomimicry as a term wasn't coined until the 20th century and made popular in science in the 1997 book by Janine Banis called Biomimicry. Innovation inspired by nature this book doesn't require the reader to have any expertise on the topic of biomimicry though so if it's not something you're super familiar with don't hesitate when it comes to checking out this book because you will not require that experience. The author explains biomimetic concepts throughout the book and even puts them into both environmental and economic context so you're not just getting definitions. The author's also explaining how these are relevant and how they benefit people in the environment. So, I'm going to read some parts of the book for you guys. Not a whole lot, but just a little bit that concerns sharks. Like I said, this isn't necessarily focused on wobegongs in particular, but because I brought this up in the first episode, I thought this would be a fun topic to kind of bring back up and discuss because I mentioned the shark skin and how it benefits people. And what's really cool is even though a lot of the shark skin technology we're seeing initially is coming from particular species like mako sharks, who are pelagic swimming sharks that swim up towards the surface and in the midwater, they're not bottom dwellers like wobegongs, every shark's dermal denticles, those scales that they have that make them so unique, are typically different between species or groups of sharks. So... The dermal denticles that we are studying for technology are based on just one group of sharks. In the future, may we may realize that many of these different sharks have different benefits for their different scales. I'm sure these are things that are being researched to a certain extent. I don't know how much the wobegongs mm-hmm. is being studied, but I do think that ones like the wobegong would be important because while Mako sharks would have really great dermal denticles to help reduce drag for ship movement as well as reducing the biofouling. Because species like the Wolbegong sit on the bottom and rest a lot, it is more important than ever for them that they have scales that are meant more for anti-biofouling than for speed. So for a mako shark, because they can't stop swimming because then they wouldn't be able to breathe they don't have to worry about biofouling as much because they're constantly on the move and they're not sitting still for any long period of time. To where the wobegong shark doesn't need to worry about speed as much, but does need to worry about the biofouling. So if we look under a microscope, chances are they would have different structures to their dermal denticles to reflect the differences in where they live and how they live. So it may be that while the shark skin they're studying currently is just, you know, some generic pelagic sharks like great whites and makos and hammerheads. They may find that for things like the hospital grade shark skin technology that they want to use, they may want something closer to a wobogong shark versus a mako shark. So who knows? Like I said, just it's not going to be wobbegong heavy, but it will be about sharks. So I'm going to go ahead and read to you a little bit from chapter one. So in chapter one, the author does a little bit of discussion about biomimicry as a whole, so looking at its potential for society. And the author says, Although the modern discipline of biomimicry is only about 15 years old, bio-inspired products have already generated billions of dollars in sales. Among these are carpet tiles modeled on a forest floor, self-cleaning buildings inspired by the leaves of the lotus plant, and fabrics, paints, and cosmetics that derive their brilliance from the way that the color is created on peacock feathers. By using a material that mimics the way muscle shells maintain their grip on rocks, a new kind of polywood is being manufactured that eliminates toxic adhesives. New biomimetic products are coming online with Big Backing, Qualcomm, A world leader in wireless technology, invested seven years in development and nearly $1 billion on a factory to mass-produce their novel electronic screens inspired by the crystalline structure in butterfly wings. Bio-inspired products often see annual doublings in sales when they enter the market. They offer customers better performance, reduced energy requirements, less waste, and less toxicity while being sold at prices competitive with existing products. More than $200 billion was invested in renewable energy worldwide in 2010, a 40% increase over 2009, even as other sectors sagged in the worst recession in 80 years. Biomimicry is sometimes described as a subset of sustainable engineering, but any truly sustainable product or business is inherently biomimetic. Biomimicry creates products based on nature's peak achievers, all of whom are sustainable. The growth potential is clear. Projections are that by 2030, biomimicry could represent 1.6 trillion in gross domestic product, including 425 billion in US GDP. I know of bio-inspired technologies in pharmacological, water treatment, heat management, and refrigeration that have this potential alone. Another $65 could be counted from the consequent reduction of carbon dioxide pollution and preservation of natural resources. It's estimated that 1.6 million U.S. jobs could be created by biomimetic businesses in the next 15 years. So that's a glimpse at the beginning of the book where the author is discussing biomimicry. After they discuss biomimicry, its history throughout human civilization, and its potential future, the author goes on to describe modern biomimetic technology that has either been developed or was in development at the time of the book's publishing back in 2014. This includes the sharkskin technology that I discussed in the month's first episode. Before we launch into this chapter, I just want to remind people that Because this was published in 2014, some of the information has changed. So, as I mentioned in the first episode of the month, there are over 500 known species of shark. You'll hear how that's changed since this book was published. So, in the second chapter, under the section Design for Speed, the author says, Sharks have been around biting things for nearly half a billion years. There are 440 species that range from 6 inches long to the biggest fish of all, the 40-foot whale shark, which actually has no relation to a whale. It's a little ironic that while they're notorious for it, sharks very rarely eat humans, or even bite them. Only about 75 shark bites are reported worldwide every year, with an average of 4 deaths. But humans eat sharks, up to 100 million of them per year. In fact, just their fins can sell for more than 300 per pound to make shark fin soup. It's one of the world's highest-priced ingredients. What do sharks have to do with business innovation? Recently, plenty. They're being used as models for a number of new, extremely valuable products, impacting everything from hospital safety to ship hulls to Olympic medals, thanks to the shark's evolutionary need to keep moving. Unlike other fish, most species of shark can't activate their gills to extract oxygen from the water. As a result, they're compelled to constantly be on the move to keep water flowing through their gills, even while sleeping. All of this movement costs a lot of energy, which then has to be supplied by the rewards of successful and vigorous hunting. Nature always likes to minimize energy use by living organisms. The most efficient animal runs the fastest and the farthest on the least amount of energy, and therefore survives better than less efficient members of its family. That's valuable evolution. Sharks are no exception, and in fact are prime examples of the extraordinary, streamlined design, more so than any human design project in a number of ways. How do they do it? A shark is somewhat bullet-shaped, which reduces its profile as it moves through the water. Its fins and tail muscles work in concert to create water vortices in their wake, which the shark can, in effect, lean against as it propels itself forward. Finally, it gains drag resistance thanks to its cleverly evolved skin, which is made from tiny vertical scales known as placoid scales or dermal denticles, little ridges with quite a rough feel to them. They are so rough that before the advent of modern sandpaper, carpenters used shark skin for sanding wood. It seems counterintuitive that a rough surface offers less drag or resistance than a smooth one. However, nature proves this to be true in countless examples. Imagine dragging your arm through water in a bathtub or a swimming pool. You can feel the pressure on your arm as the water molecules flow around the obstruction, your arm. What is harder to feel, but is also occurring, is that your arm is dragging water along as well. In a similar way, a ship can drag its own weight in the water as it travels. Pulling the ocean along with it obviously means that the ship burns much more fuel than if it could leave all that water behind. Added to this, the boat's propeller operates, in part, in the same water that's being dragged. This reduces propulsion efficiency. Ship operators worldwide traditionally try to keep their hulls as clean and as smooth as possible to reduce drag. A shark's skin is rough, but rather than making it less slippery, its surface actually keeps large amounts of water from sticking to the animal and dragging against the forward motion. Essentially, by roughing up the water right at the intersection of the shark and its surroundings, less of the water sticks to the shark to slow it down. This feature is currently being exploited by a number of businesses. It's an example of biomimicry based on form, where a particular mechanical shape evolved by nature results in improved performance when applied to engineered devices or tools. So that was a little extra on top of what I discussed in the first episode, because in this month's first episode... When I discuss the dermal denticles, I focus on the fact that it reduces biofouling and things growing on it, but there is obviously the physics of how the shape works too, not just in biofouling, but also in allowing the shark to very easily cut through the water with little resistance. The author goes on to discuss the application of shark skin from ships to turbines. Shark skin isn't the only adaptation the author brings up, he also discusses Biopower Systems' Biostream project which mimics the crescent shape of a shark's tail for more efficient hydro turbines to produce clean energy. Sharks are not the only animals or adaptation that the book covers. Birds, reptiles, sea urchins, whales, bees and butterflies, and other animals have helped inspire new ways of solving technological issues while reducing our impact on the environment and generating economic growth. Towards the end, There is more focus on how biomimicry can be applied in the business sector and what benefits it offers the economy. But again, it reads pretty well for the most part, even if you're not necessarily into business. It's not hard to read, and to be honest, if you don't like it, you can always just skip it. I personally love the middle part where they're discussing wildlife and some of the really neat adaptations. Overall, I personally enjoyed the read when I was first looking into a career in environmentalism. I originally thought to go back to school for sustainable design or to be a sustainability consultant, but I really wanted a job that would take me outdoors and those really weren't going to be great for that. However, I do intend to take some courses on sustainable technology and development because it really is an amazing discipline and modern biomimetic innovation has really produced incredible technologies that are inexpensive and environmentally friendly if you have an interest in sustainability, technology and engineering, or designs inspired by nature, this is an informative and casual read. I'm a bit of a speed reader, so it's almost 300 pages, only takes me about a day or two to read in my spare time, but even for a casual reader, the book shouldn't take more than maybe four or five days if you have an hour or two to read each day. It's not a very thick book. And considering that it was published a few years back, you can probably find it relatively inexpensively if you're not going to just check it out at your local library. Anyway, that's all I have for this week. Thanks again for listening in on this mini-sode. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to my email, thenaturalist at thenaggingnaturalist.com, and check out my website, thenaggingnaturalist.com. On social media, you can find The Nagging Naturalist on Facebook and Instagram, as well as on Twitter under the handle at nag underscore naturalist. Thanks again, and I'll see you guys next week. Hey guys, so here is another outtake segment. You guys can enjoy listening to me stumble through this very brief episode that was surprisingly difficult. While this book is a touch semi-nash, not National Geographic, semi-autobiographic. Darn it. Projections are that by 2030, biomimicry could represent 1.6 trillion of gross domestic gross domestic product product, including 425 billion in U.S. GDP. G- G- GDP, oh my gosh, I can't get this right. The author goes on to describe mo- modern biomimetic technology and has either been div- What is that? Oh, cat hair. Oh my goodness. There isn't even a cat in here, what's going on? Oh, they're getting summer coats. The worst. He also discusses Biopower Streams. Crap, that's wrong. He also discusses Biopower Systems BioStream project, which mimics the croissant. <laughs> the croissant shape of a shark's tail. I guess it is kind of croissant shaped as. Croissant... <laughs> oh. Coffee break. It's time for a coffee break. Towards the end of the book, there is a little bit more focus on how biomimicry can be applied and bitten. <sniffs> Messed all that up. Please feel free to reach out to my email, thenaturalist at com. <coughs> oh boy. Let's record that again. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs>